This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Though no single instance of irregular naval warfare can be labeled as a defining moment of the American Revolution, the cumulative effect of both successful and unsuccessful attempts by the Americans to challenge Great Britain's naval dominance had a profound effect on the Royal Navy's operations in North America and on the will of the British people to continue to prosecute the war. With us to discuss that issue is Commander Steve Wendelin, United States Navy, and Steve is joining us again after having been here was a couple weeks ago couple with weeks ago. Matthew uh, mm-hmm. Zanik. So welcome back, Steve. Welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you, um, and thank you for hosting this, and thank you for this great series. Um, so what we're going to be discussing today is uh, irregular naval warfare. What is it? So uh, Now, I, I want to clarify. We covered maritime irregular warfare in the uh, 19th century writ large with uh, er, one of our early uh, podcasts. Mm-hmm. How would you define it writ large, but also specifically to the American Revolution? Well, first of all, let's let's look at just the broad definition of what irregular war is, also known as asymmetric war. In the various theories of war, it's ironic that we call it irregular warfare because if you take all the wars that have ever been fought, the vast majority of them are in fact irregular. So let's start with the easy definition of that is what is regular warfare? Regular warfare is pretty much two matched nation states and their armed forces in conflict. Whereas with irregular warfare or asymmetric warfare, you have one side which is has advantage in population, uh, economics, uh, military technology, and just size of their forces. The thing that you need to say if to distinguish between regular and irregular is look at it like this. If one side can simply just stop fighting and go home and suffer no ill effects, that's pretty much the definition of what would be irregular warfare or irregular warfare or asymmetric. Can two nation states of equivalent power, and I'm thinking here in the early 19th century of France and and England, can they conduct irregular warfare? They can in the sense of of their TTPs, their tactics, techniques, and procedures, where basically it's almost a, like commerce rating and things of that nature. However, for for the entire conflict to be described as irregular or asymmetric, you really have to have that, that unbalanced uh, match. Uh, basically, someone basically punching much, much above their weight class. You did a master's degree, and the title of your, pap- your dissertation is Of Patriots and Pirates, Irregular Naval Warfare During the American War of Independence. Why did you choose that topic? Back in 2006 and 2007, I was a student at the Marine Corps uh, Command and Staff School at the Marine Corps University in Quantico. And obviously, this is post 9-11, and we are really studying what, what the War of Terror was and what it meant. And we're looking at it from a very much an academic sense. And... I realized that that the techniques that 
the terrorists were using against us is nothing new. Because of that and my love of naval history, um, I kind of combined the two and said, okay, I can write a history paper yet make it relevant to today's conflict that we were in and continue to be in with the uh, the global war, as it were, of terror uh, on terrorism, uh, which, by the way, I've never particularly been happy with, but we call it lots of different things, but we'll keep it at that. So basically, how I start out the paper is I talk about no rational person would ever engage in asymmetric war. You know, the little guy, you know, if he has any sense at all, isn't going to go up to the biggest guy on the playground and, and punch him. Um, these tend to be wars out of desperation. They're wars where the, the, the smaller side, the disadvantaged side, uh, really feels that there is no other option other than going to war. And so they have to come up with other ways of fighting war other than toe-to-toe. Uh, and the Revolutionary War was no different um, in that sense. We were fighting the greatest maritime power uh, that the world had ever known. They dominated the, the Royal Navy, dominated the oceans. At this point, uh, they are not at an active war with the French, so the French are simply seen as neutrals at the beginning of the Revolutionary War. Um, so they really can kind of focus on the colonies, as it were and the war over here. So because we don't even have a Navy, how are we going to go about this? And there was no real infrastructure. I mean, was there any shipbuilding going on? Any, were we building merchant ships or were we relying primarily on what was available from England? So we were, we were building ships. They, they were smaller ships. And, and the, the beautiful thing is we had all these great natural resources. We didn't quite yet have the infrastructure of the shipyards uh, that we did uh, in the next war. Which nor, was, nor of the cannons. We didn't have foundries. We didn't have foundries difficult. or anything else. So uh, a lot of the vessels were French or English. They were merchantmen or they were owned. Because remember, at that point, we were British. So we did own those ships. So a lot of the raw materials were going over to Europe and then would be coming back as finished goods. And the ships were were very much of the same. But some were being locally built. It, it was just starting at that point. What's amazing is that how quickly we adapted. Also, irony of ironies, the concept of the Navy bore out of the Army. You know, It was General Washington that realized uh, during the siege of Boston that we needed a Navy. Basically, the, the British were were holed up in, in Boston, and they had uh, supply routes that were completely unimpeded. And one of the first acts that he did was basically commandeering a vessel and putting an army captain on board. Uh, I believe the vessel's name was the Nancy, and basically gave her orders of disrupt the British uh, in, in or around or on their way to Boston. Which is not unheard of in, in terms of putting an army officer in charge of a naval vessel. And I want to go back to another episode we did with Grant Walker on the Anglo-Dutch Wars, for example. It was very common in that time to have army uh, generals or people who were trained with the army to take command of the fleet. And that's how fleet tactics ended up emerging or evolving out of the, the strict melees. They actually form 
formulated plans and lines of battle because they had taken it from their land-based experiences. It's funny. There are a lot of instances of the Army's influence in, in our, uh, I call it an embryonic Navy, as it were, uh, to include uh, a sergeant who was the first submariner, uh, combat submariner, um, but later, later on that. So, so basically, we have these two very unequal forces. What do we do? A lot has been studied on the use of privateers. What's and a privateer? So a privateer is essentially a civilian uh, who goes to their government and is given a letter of mark. Now, I'm greatly simplifying this. Uh, in order to see achieve a, little, a letter of mark, one, you have to be kind of in good standing. You have to know somebody. Also, you have to put up a bond uh, for to receive the letter of mark. But during the war, there were almost over 1,400 letters of mark issued to Americans to wage war against the British. And this is not to have a, a commercial vessel owned by a privateer attacking a British warship. This is to attack commerce, this is which attack is undefended, largely undefended. Largely un undefended. And, and so the profit is almost pure profit. If it is deemed to be a lawful prize, that entire prize is now owned by the privateer. Uh, so there would also be investors. So people would invest, and someone may offer up backing for the vessels, and they uh, offer up the backing for the bond. And there are actually small companies basically being formed uh, around these privateers. Once a privateer captures a merchant ship, how do they sell it? How do they make money on it? So it has to be condemned. The prize has to be condemned in an admiralty court. Now, what we were doing and one of the tactics that, uh, that, that really did help us uh, contribute to our efforts with the war is we took the war to the British. So what we could do is while the, the French were neutral, if, we, if a, an American privateer captured a British vessel, all they had to do was get to the closest neutral port, which in this case would be France, and they arranged for an admiralty court there. So there were no admiralty courts in the United States? No, there would have been. Uh, there would have been as well. But if you're transporting that prize and it hasn't been condemned yet, so you haven't gotten your payout yet, you're, you're risking uh, that vessel being retaken. And there are lots of instances of prizes being retaken or uh, the crews being overthrown. And so if all you have to do is simply sail across the channel, or sail from the Irish Sea uh, around, which is which was pretty perilous. But once you got into that neutral port, you were safe. Now, I, earlier I said the United States, and I apologize. I should have said the colonies at that point the colonies, during yes. during the American Revolution that evolved into the states and eventually the United States. Were there admiralty courts in the Caribbean and elsewhere? Would they really have to go either to the colonies or to somewhere in Europe for well the the, the, pro port. the problem is is in the Caribbean it would have had to have gone into a French a French port a right. French port or a Dutch port so most uh, so most ports had Admiralty courts that could adjudicate this ex exactly and again this is this is really was a war of profit you know that's that's why sure were they were they Patriots probably but basically it was a way of making money but they, Again, had, they had an, a significant effect on, they on the war's outcome. They really did. And so one of the things that we, we discuss 
in, in, in virtually every command and staff program is the concept of dime, which is how one country uh, influences another country or, or, or puts power, uh, um, projects their power to that other country. And dime is basically D is diplomacy, I is kind of information. Um, you can think of it in modern terms of cyber or even simply as, as information as in propaganda, kind of winning hearts and minds or, or not winning hearts and minds. Big M is military and then E is economic. With privateers, they are affecting the economy and it's not just in loss of revenue, it's just not in loss of that, but it also drives up uh, marine insurance rates and it influences the British people. If you're sitting in England behind the wooden wall, which you've always believed to be impenetrable and kept them safe for hundreds of years from the French and the Dutch and the, and the Spanish even, and then all of a sudden your coasts are being raided or your, your prizes are being taken right off the coast, that's going to be very unsettling. And maritime uh, insurance rates are going to go up. And again, you're having, you're having an effect on the will of the people to support that war that the crown is waging. And, the, and it's, it's important to note, people sometimes confuse privateers with pirates because pirates are non-state actors. They're not authorized by any state government to act on their behalf privateers are authorized arms. And in fact, they got to be so um, included with the, the government that even privateers were subject to what we would call today the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Ab Justice, which was back then the act governing the, uh, the Navy. I think it was 1802. I forget which, there were a couple of acts right around there. There were two aspects of privateers. The first was that privateers had pensions from the government, their widows, their children. And the second aspect was this, the court marshal, courts martial. And I went through right. something like 316 courts martial for the 1820s and 30s, but I also looked at some earlier ones for the War of 1812. And privateers were subject to those, and there, were, there was a mutiny on one, uh, but they they were accountable mm -hmm. and Absolutely. and they were funded just like the Na navy widow would be. Absolutely, and some of the things that's kind of funny is during the 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 revolution, there are two individuals. Everyone's familiar with John Paul Jones, of course, and he was labeled a a, a pirate specifically for his raid um, off the coast of, of Scotland, where he actually attempted to kidnap. Uh, was it local, Earl, Earl of Whitehaven, I think? Yes, yeah. the um, uh, local gentry. And instead, his crew took the silver. And so he was labeled a pirate. But he returned but, those. But he, he, did, he did return it. But there are two other individuals that no one ever hears about. One is Lambert uh, Wicks, and the other one is Gustavus, uh, Gustavus uh, Cunningham. And... What's interesting about these two is, one, Lambert Wicks was very successful, um, but we don't remember him because on his way back from a very successful cruise, uh, his vessel was floundered and everyone was lost except for one survivor. And then with what's really unfortunate about uh, Gustavus Cunningham is that when he went in to condemn the prizes 
it wasn't recognized that he had a letter of remark. So technically, he was a pirate in the terms of legal, even though these two individuals doing the same, and he felt that he did have this letter of remark, although it is a tangible piece of paper. I don't know where there would be confusion. But even if he could produce it, it just simply wasn't recognized. So had they been captured, um, they can be summarily executed uh, by the Royal Navy. Let's go on to a, another aspect of regular warfare, and that's uh, smuggling. Yes. So why, why would that be under warfare? So I, I again, I consider this. Uh, I, I called this chapter kind of the Great American and British pastime. Smuggling, basically, you're, you're doing. You're basically tax evasion. With the idea of smuggling, you're you're evading taxes. What needs to happen is is the vessels would come in and uh, to the various uh, counting houses, an inspector would come on board, and they would levy the taxes based on your cargo. Well, we weren't real happy about taxes. For that matter, the British weren't very happy about taxes. So basically, you would avoid taxes by smuggling. Well, right there, you are biting into the revenue of the crown, and they're turning that money around to um, to fight you with. So if you can if you can avoid paying those taxes, um, you can hurt their support of the war. And additionally, this is also how we're getting arms in. You know, we're smuggling arms from the continent. Is that how the cannons were being brought in? Because keep in mind, so we have the privateers, which have generally small they're smaller cannons. Right. You have cannons that are being mounted on some of our frigates. We had a ship of the line that was that was built. But where are they, obviously it's sloops, but where are they getting the cannons from if we don't have foundries? Well, they're, they're captured. They're either captured on prizes and or they're sm being smuggled in from, uh, from the continent. One of the things about, again, just taking prizes is there were a lot of British redcoats that were killed by British musket balls and British bayonets and British powder that were captured or they were smuggled in when we started getting supplies in from France. Whether we purchased them from France or at later on in the war, of course, France, you know, uh, starts giving us these supplies. So bringing them into these small coastal areas and just also as far as with the smugglers, it's not just moving things, it's also moving people and it's moving messages, communications. It's how we're communicating with our representatives over in France, like Benjamin Franklin. Just, they, it really has a, a strong tie to this, and it adds, you know, can you say, did smuggling turn the tide of the war? No, it didn't. It but was part of it. It was part of it. And so you have to look at the whole thing, including the economics of it. There were certainly a finite number of ports uh, in the colonies. The British, as you say, had the largest navy in the world. I think it was still largest in the world at the time of the revolution. Why was their uh, blockade not more successful? Well, because we have such a long coastline. Um, and, and, and it's, again, geography plays just like it did in the War of 1812, just like it's played its role in pretty much every war, the Civil War. The, the Civil same, war. same geography. Yeah. It doesn't change. It, it doesn't change. And we have such long coastlines. And even though we don't have that many ports, deep water ports, 
these are very small vessels that we're talking about. They're, they're luggers. They're the things that can be handled by, in some instances, maybe a crew of one, but uh, usually maybe just a crew of maybe three or four. The other thing, too, in addition to smuggling, is you basically had blockade runners. So the difference is a smuggler just doesn't want to be seen. They're going to move under the cover of darkness. Uh, they're going to follow the, uh, the coast very closely where a uh, ship of the line is not going to go. Um, however, you simply have small, fast craft that are handled exceedingly well, and they're going to run these blockades. Um, and I think, again, this was a tactic used all the way through the Civil War as well. Amphibious operations. Now, for World War II, they were certainly commonplace in the Pacific. Why are amphibious operations during the American Revolution considered irregular warfare? Just because it was something that, that the British weren't expecting. Um, they kind of denied... Uh, they were expecting us to, to move troops over land. And so when we could move them by water, um, even, even Washington's crossing the Delaware, you know, you know it was unguarded. You, you had a moat. So why worry about that side? Um, that's the, the type of amphibious operation that I'm thinking about. The colonists, as we said, had a very rudimentary industrial base. How does technology play a role in irregular warfare? Well, we had a lot of innovations, and we also had a lot of lessons from history. Two of the most effective pieces of technology that we had that really helped us were essentially um, the boom and the, again, excuse my, uh, my butchering of the French uh, word, but the uh, Chavez de Frise, mm -hmm. and it's a maritime version of that. Um, a lot of people, uh, if you can imagine those pictures of the Civil War of the, the, the spikes on a central spindle, uh, basically as an anti-personnel and anti-horse barricade that you can move around, the maritime version of it uh, was very simple. They were uh, oaken logs that had iron tips on them, and then they'd be sunk in a channel. And either you could completely blockade a channel with it, or you could uh, canalize uh, the ships coming through so you could take them under fire from forts or gun emplacements uh, on the river's edge. Washington's watch chain, which was a huge work, uh, stretched across the Hudson at West Point. Uh, basically, it was a huge chain floated on uh, log grass. And once this was in place, although there were several attempts to sabotage it, one being done by Benedict Arnold, the British could not defeat that obstacle. Therefore, we denied them the highway that was the Hudson River. In addition, they were used extensively up around on the Delaware River, uh, so for Philadelphia. So again, we could deny that, that water route to the British. In addition, there were uh, some other uh, technologies used. The biggest, one of the most famous ones, of course, is Bushnell's turtle. That was, is that considered, that's, that's a submersible, not a submarine? I'd actually consider it a submarine. Why? Because it wasn't it, fully submersible, though. It was. It, no, it, 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 the snorkels actually had flapper valves in them, so if the snorkels uh, went underwater, uh, it would close out the sea. Now, how, how would it work? Explain, explain so, the turtle. So the turtle was essentially a huge oak tree 
that was cut in half and hollowed out. That's why it was called the turtle. It looked like two turtle shells uh, strapped together with iron. In the bottom of it was a ballast tank. By opening a valve, you could flood that tank. And then by means of a foot pump, you could pump that water back out and therefore regain your buoyancy. So it was capable of neutral buoyancy. Um, It had a very, very small hatch that served also as the conning tower. And it was operated by hand. You had uh, a a hand crank propeller uh, to propel you forward. And you also had one uh, up on the top of the turtle to uh, change your, your depth. Um, had all the modern components of a modern submarine. Um, it was the, how, how fast could it go? It, it couldn't. Like and, a, and, a and, knot, maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, and that was the problem. Is is they towed the turtle as closely as they could with boats, and their target was the sixty-four gun Eagle, which was also the flagship of the Royal Navy here in the colonies. Once they they got as close as they could. The sergeant then flooded the tanks and then cranked his way to the Eagle. Now, how he was going to destroy the Eagle or sinker was to, there was a screw on the end of an auger uh, that was attached to essentially a mine. It was a keg of gunpowder that had a clockwork uh, mechanism on it that was set for 20 minutes once he detached the mine. The problem he had is he could not effectively attach the mine. We don't know if he ran up a piece against a piece of iron that was on the keel, because the auger, they certainly knew that it would have to get through the copper plating. They, um, were they copper plated at this point? I mean, 1780, we've got the Minerva, I thought was the first successful uh, mounting of, of uh, copper plating on, on a hull. So... Uh, Again, they think that it may have gotten hung up on some ironwork mm-hmm. uh, because he was back aft uh, on the keel, uh, so it may have been on some of the iron strapping to support the rudder. Um, regardless, he was exhausted, so he simply detached the mine and, um, and propelled the turtle uh, safely out. 20 minutes later, there was a huge explosion. It alerted the British, and they didn't know quite what was going on. But then, even then, you could consider that attack was successful because after that fact, they had to set up picket boats and more sentries because they knew they were Which going to Which takes resources away resources from the normal duties. Was the uh, turtle lost in the explosion? No, it wasn't actually. He, uh, However, Bushnell, because it was in New York, was afraid of the turtle being captured, so it was burned. And uh, although I've seen a couple of uh, reproductions since based on drawings and 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 descriptions didn't they uh, recreate the turtle and i want to say it was around 2001 or 2000 it was after 9 11 and i think whoever recreated the turtle popped it up in new york harbor and it set <laughs> off all sorts of force protection uh <laughs> alarms on that if i if I, rem- I remember the story right but I'll well there's a uh, there's a beautiful replica of the turtle up at the um uh the the submarine museum up in uh, connecticut so that's where I, I've seen. But she is beautiful. And David Bushnell didn't stop at that. He realized he was kind of on to something with the, these floating mines or torpedoes, as they would call them. And so the next thing he tried was known, went down in history as the Battle of the Kegs, where he basically took kegs of gunpowder with a flintlock mechanism in them 
that had a hair trigger on it. So basically when the keg was bumped up against something like the hull of the ship, it would strike and detonate the gunpowder. These kegs were floated underneath floats and then floated downriver uh, towards them. None actually made contact with a ship, but uh, they did send out these picket boats to examine what these were. And, and well, unfortunate, because they're now our allies, uh, the British crew, the longboat was destroyed and, and all the sailors on board were, were killed. Once they realized that these were weapons, they gen, then spent the next several hours shooting at anything that was floating to include a keg of butter that had been lost uh, over the side of, uh, of a small boat going uh, across the river back and forth. So again, you know, no great uh, victories there. But again, it wears on them, and, it, and, and they have to use resources to guard their ships. They now have to put uh, patrols on the, on the river's edge and patrol the river's edge because they never know where the next attack is coming from, which comes to kind of the next thing. Again, a very old, even by revolutionary standards, uh, in, the, in the late 17, uh, or in the late uh, 1700s, is the fire ship. Uh, fire ships have been used since the, Greek, uh, the times of, of, of the Peloponnesian War. Essentially, you take an older vessel, a vessel that has outlived its, its life, as it were. Um, it might be leaking a bit. Uh, it certainly could be any size. And you would fill it with anything that would burn to include the vessel itself. Rags soaked with oil, uh, bundles of corn stalks, uh, cordage, anything probably not gunpowder because that was such a valuable commodity and you would sail them towards the enemy at anchor at the last moment you would basically secure the wheel secure the helm and escape via small boat lighting this on fire now best case is they would go into the anchorage and they would set the other ships on fire but even worst case you're still going to force that fleet to slip their anchors and to get underway unexpectedly. And you're completely disrupting that fleet at anchor. Was that used by US, sorry, by colonial forces during the American Revolution? And it was. Um, again, not necessarily to the effect of burning British ships, but to cause chaos at the anchorages. Uh, one of the earliest attempts of this was actually in August, uh, August 17th, in 1776 on the Hudson River, where the British vessels Phoenix and Rose um, were basically assaulted by fire ships. And, it, uh, and the Phoenix's tender, which would have been, you know, a longboat essentially, was destroyed in it. But again, it really kept the British on edge the entire time. They, they did not have freedom of movement, as it were. They had to keep these vessels manned and guarded. To what degree do you think that maritime irregular warfare impacted the course of the American Revolution? If you go back to the dime model with Big M, militarily, probably none at all. Um, there were no significant incidents that you could say that was a military victory for the American revolutionaries. However, um, with the morale of the British being the eye, and their economy, most definitely. And then when it comes to ending the war and, and, and forcing the British to the, to the table, as it were, for the peace treaty, even diplomacy. 
Uh, it's certainly, these little victories also helped us with foreign diplomacy. Again, we could cite, Benjamin Franklin could cite these examples with the French, uh, with the French court and say, look, look at us, look at, uh, at what we can do. You know, we're raiding, you know, coastal towns on the British Isles, okay? We're, we're worth the investment of treasure, blood, and uh, powder. What were the best sources for you to use in your research? A lot of it was, was secondary sources. There were a couple primary sources I did come across, um, mostly in the town of Whitehaven. Uh, there's a lot of contemporary accounts of the raid, and it's interesting looking at it from the, the British standpoint and from the uh, John Paul Jones' standpoint, because two very different kind of stories kind of played out. From John Paul Jones's standpoint, kind of a failure. He detached, he split his forces, he sent one of his forces down to, to send, to uh, set alight all the, the, the ships and boats that were currently at anchor. Uh, that completely failed, they weren't able to do any of that. He went on shore to kidnap a, a lord and uh, that didn't happen. However, to the British, this was a huge insult. This was, um, people were up in arms that you can't protect us. You're, you're off waging this war against, you know, British subjects, which is how the British were looking at this, and, and you can't take care of business at home. So again, all these factors compel the British to enter into a uh, peace treaty with us. Steve Wendland, Commander of the United States Navy, thanks for joining us again on Preble Hall. Thank you for having me, Claude, and, and thank you for this program and this opportunity. Thank you. And to our listeners, if you've enjoyed the program and other episodes, please leave feedback on any of the platforms you listen to this. Have a great day. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.